this past that this passage of Matthew chapter 26 verse 69 to Matthew 27 verse 10 deals specifically with a picture and the picture that is painted for us is one of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow and we know that Paul makes mention of that very thing and even explains it and what he explains is the difference between the two that godly sorrow works repentance and worldly sorrow works death. And so we see it here. This is certainly not the first place we see it, but we do see it emphasized before us. We see the difference not only between godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, but we see the difference between sifting uh, a man who's being sifted like wheat and then a man who's being handed over in judgment. The difference between chastening one as a loving father would chasten a son Versus eternal judgment toward one who has rejected the Lord. Both, however, are the fulfillment of prophecy. They're both the fulfillment of prophecy. And both the Lord predicted would do what they did with perfect accuracy. So both are instances of the fulfillment of God's overall divine decree. The lives of both men are not. Uh, are not something that simply got away from the Lord. In fact, their lives are both marked off for very distinct purposes in the same event. But first, we look at Peter's denial. We look at Peter's denial. And Peter's life to this point had been building up to this point, especially in the recent days, so as to make him all that he is and all that he is to the church and all that he is to us as a faithful servant for all time, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we have been studying uh, the book of Acts, even as we have been looking at, in certain instances, Peter, uh, his epistle itself. So we look at his denial, not so much to look at a man who entered into final judgment, because that's not the case with Peter. We look at his denials to look at one who's been humbled. And humbled by the great schoolmaster. But there were three denials, just as Jesus prophesied to him directly. And in the first one, uh, he's sitting in the courtyard. And a servant girl recognizes him. And more than recognizing him, she spoke to him. She spoke to him. And she says in verse 69, you too... We're with Jesus, the Galilean. While he was betraying Jesus, and this is often the case with any form of betraying God, betraying the commandments of God. Uh, we see a man who is supremely confident in his flesh. But he's not only betraying Jesus, his fleshly confidence is betraying him. His confidence that he has in his own flesh is betraying him. And as I mentioned, this is the nature of betrayal. That which a man trusts in will betray him if that person or object is not Christ himself. But this is also, as I mentioned, the nature of chastening discipline that a loving father gives to his children. Because this is from the hand of that loving father. And the son who would not lose any of his own, as he had said in uh, John's gospel, as it is recorded for us in his prayer in the Garden 
of Gethsemane. But we have that first denial and the servant girl recognizes him and she says, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. And verse 70 says, he denied it before them all. He denied it before them all. And what he said is, I do not know what you are talking about. And there are, it seems, in this text, and I say it seems because as you look at these denials, they seem to build to one another. But there seems to be stages to his denial. Stages for his denials. The nature of his first denial was to pretend he had no knowledge of the occasion itself. To pretend he had no knowledge of Christ or the events in which the people speak of. It is a general denial. It is to pretend not to be aware of the occasion. But also it is a form of plausible deniability as it's called. And I say that because it takes place long before he verbally denies Christ. That so-called plausible deniability. And it does in this way because here he is seated with Christ's enemies hiding among them so as not to be found out. And as I've been mentioning, he denied them from the moment he entered with them to see what it was that was going to occur. Because he was pretending that he did not know what the results would be. And so he found himself with Christ's enemies. And why do I say he pretends not to know? Because at every turn, Jesus being perfectly honest, the God-man, full of the highest supreme integrity, one who is also prophet, priest, and king. And if he be a prophet, he is certainly one who could prophesy events concerning himself and others. Being the God-man, he knows all things. And so he explained very plainly at various points to his disciples exactly what would occur. In fact, as we rewind back to the occasion upon which he leaves Galilee and enters Jerusalem, he tells them why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to give up, give up his life. But it is that form of plausible deniability. Seated with Christ's enemies, hiding among them not to be found out. And he at first denied Christ prior to this based on his position. You see Peter's denial long before the three verbal ones, because those three verbal ones are a product of where he stands physically. But his three verbal ones uh, demonstrate his position among them. In other words, he had hoped that his placement among them would keep him from the dangers that came upon Christ. Let me repeat that. He had hoped that where he sat, where he congregated, would keep him from the dangers that had befallen Christ. It's a phrase called self-preservation. And this is a good text to look at in this age because we live in a time where I believe self-preservation is at an all-time high. Joined to pragmatism. Do whatever works. Preserve yourself by any means necessary. And then we have what he says. I do not know what you are talking about. Because Jesus' prophecy was that he would verbally deny him three times before the rooster crows. I do not know what you are talking about. Verse 71. Then another servant girl saw him. Notice what she said to those who were there. 
Because there's a distinction in how they refer to Jesus so as to tie Peter to him in every instance. In the first account, Jesus is recognized as the Galilean. So they place Peter with Christ in all the events that take place in Galilee. And then in this uh, second one where they recognize Peter, where the servant girl recognizes him. In 71, verse 71, she says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. It speaks to not only the earthly origin, so to speak, of where he was from in his humanity and where God placed him in his deity to live out his life, but also the events concerning his life at large and all who were attached to him. He's recognized as the Galilean and as Jesus of Nazareth. Now let's step back because there is a judgment that befalls these servant girls. They recognize who Jesus is. They know where he's from. They know who has followed him. And yet their purpose in these chain of events is not to draw people to worship him, but to indict those who are with him. And if you have to indict people who are with Christ, you must know who Christ is. For these charges to be what they are. So people are not coming to try to take Christians away because they don't know what the Christians are about and who they serve. They know who you serve. But the crimes that they try to charge to you are that you serve the one who will overthrow their kingdom. But there was no mistaking the fact that Peter was with him. There was no mistake. It was clear to the servant girls. That they knew that this man was with him. But there was also no mistaking that Jesus the Nazarene and the Galilean were the same man. That we're not talking about two different Jesuses. There were some who not only tracked Jesus, but some of those on both sides of this who were with him and where they went when they were with him. They were with Christ. His disciples were with him for the purpose of following him, learning from him, being entrusted to the grand scope of the church age. All that entrusted to them by his power. But then there were those who tracked him, who tracked him to know his movements so that we could, uh, as we see here, so that they could uh, they could bring up charges against him and against those who were with him. The people are always watching who are who is uh, with Christ. But verse 72, his second denial, and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. The denials are heightened. <clears throat> he denied it with an oath. He not only betrayed his first words, but he became more specific in his denial. He became more specific. The idea here is that Peter disavowed Christ. And he did so with an oath. He disavowed him. He disavowed all knowledge of his person, all affiliation with him, and denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. The same word and sense is used in Mark 6, whereby Herodias is under a strong oath that he dared not repudiate before the servant girl and his dinner guest. And upon that strong oath, this was a binding oath in the, in, in, in the ancient Near East culture. He gave the head of John the Baptist's uh, of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And in doing so, he demonstrates sorrowfulness in a worldly sense. Another picture of worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. He beheads John the Baptist under a strong oath. Even wishes he could go back on that oath. But his oath was stronger than his sorrow. And so it is the same thing here with Peter. That Peter is swearing this oath. And the idea of the oath is he disavows Jesus. And this is where we step back and see where the gospel writings, especially within the gospel writing context of Matthew, they're all related. What did Jesus say? Why did he say it? And what should we do in light of it? Because these oaths were the way of the world. Men forming oaths. You know who spoke against men giving oaths? Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, specifically verse 34. And we talked about them when Matt, uh, our brother, was going through uh, the Beatitudes. That Jesus taught against swearing and binding yourself to an oath. He taught his disciples not to do this. And so here, even the means in which Peter denied Christ went against Christ himself. There is no virtuous way to deny Christ. For to deny Christ, you have to take up Satan's platform and his teachings in order to deny Christ. This allows us to look at things for exactly what they are in this way. That there's no such thing as people who we absolve from apostasy because they have, quote unquote, been faithful. There's no such thing. When men repudiate Christ, they repudiate his teachings no matter what they say out of their mouths if they're not verbally repudiating him. And if they verbally repudiate what he's doing and what he's saying, then they are verbally assaulting all his teachings, his, per his person, everything in the canon of scripture. And that's what's at stake here. That Peter is detaching himself not only from the person of Christ, but the teachings of Christ. Because Christ taught against oaths. And so Peter is using oaths to deny Christ. So he repudiated Christ and his teaching. The two are all the same. The two are exactly the same. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the person of Christ without his teachings. You can't have the teaching of Christ without his persons. You can't have disciples of Christ without his person and teaching. That's why disciples are made by Christ according to what Christ commanded us to teach and according to his teachings. But to swear by an oath was to deny Christ. And it was to deny the implications of his teachings against swearing by oaths. And so in this instance, Peter denies it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up. Now there's more people lending credibility to this argument of Peter having known him. And said to Peter, surely you two are one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. There's a distinction. There's a distinction in two ways. Given to his accent, the region upon which he is, and also given to his mannerisms. For he had been indeed with Christ and didn't sound like the system around him. 
It is something here how a man's not only accent and manner of speech identifies where he is from. Identifies where he is from. It gives him away. It gives him away. And so it was with Peter. Whatever the distinction between Galilee and Jerusalem, it could be heard in the distinction of speech. But whatever the difference uh, between Jesus and and the system of the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, governed by the Sanhedrin council, it could be seen, spiritually speaking, in the way that they conducted themselves in manners of speech. And so you have both and. You have this distinction of speech in what he says and how he says it, but also the distinction of speech in who he is affiliated with. As it relates to the accent, that's not hard. We have that here regionally in our nation. We have it nationally and internationally. But that's not all that's happening because they're not simply identifying that he's from a region. They're identifying that he was with a person. Verse 73 is his third and final denial. It's his third and final denial. I'm sorry, verse 74. Uh, Then he began to curse and swear. He began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. His words gave him away. His appearance gave him away. His accent gave him away. His manner of speech gave him away. And everything that he was affiliated with concerning Christ gave him away. We see that this is chastening. Because there are still reflections of his master in him. And even though he wants to repudiate them, they cannot be repudiated because he's kept by the one in whom we're proclaiming to you this morning. He looked like Christ. He sounded like Christ. He acted like Christ until that moment when he was challenged at that very place. And he would need that same Christ to rescue him. Because he bore his reflection. It is so with us. It is so with us. If you're trying to hide, no matter how you try to hide, if you truly belong to him, you will be known. You will be found out. If your sins will find you out, so too will your holiness. And the holiness is not by anything you do. It will be by the one who keeps you. The one who marks you off and says you are indeed not like the world. Whether it be by chastening or by strengthening. But his oath could not save him. His oath could not save him. Why? Because his oath was a lie. His oath could not condemn him because his oath was not more powerful than the one who was about to head to the cross. So his oath could not save him and his his oath did not uh, ultimately condemn him. He had no power over his own soul. He could repudiate all he wanted. If God had marked him off for salvation, elected him to divine grace, he was going to keep him. It says some time had passed here. Not much time, but some time. And it says in verse 74, as I mentioned, things became heightened. He cursed and he sweared. And it's not simply to use the curse words of the day to affirm his denial. That's not exactly what this is saying. 
But here it is far beyond that and far worse. Here it is to swear curses upon your head if you are lying. It's to say essentially, I'm cursed. Curse me if I am not telling you the truth. Again, it is to call down curses upon yourself if indeed what you are saying is not true. So you have him heightening going beyond an oath. You're getting the picture as to why Jesus says, do not give oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not swear by things. A simple yes or no will do. And this he did, calling these curses upon himself. Look how much he's trying to detach himself from Christ and all the dangers of following Christ. Swearing curses upon his head. And this he did by promising and binding himself to an oath. You'll see this very same sinful conduct when given the choice, the nation chooses Barabbas over Jesus. And the religious establishment says, essentially, I summarize and curse our sons. Let the curses fall upon our head and our children's head. If what we've done is unjust. And guess what? That oath is still in play. Because that oath is tied to a covenant. The Mosaic covenant. And one has to be joined to Christ in order for that covenant to be fulfilled in them. Especially among the sons of Israel. But he says, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. And what we see next is Christ in his mercy toward Peter. He rescues Peter from this. He takes Peter away from himself. He saves Peter from himself. Because where this is going is the way of eternal curse, eternal judgment. If this is allowed to continue in such a way so that God allowed him to reap the whirlwind of his own mouth. But Christ was merciful to Peter because we're not looking at a man marked off for eternal judgment. We're looking at God's child who is grievously sinning against him and God saving him by his mercy alone. Saved, being saved, will be saved. But Christ was merciful to Peter in two ways. The rooster crows. The rooster crows. And puts an end to this. But equally so, where's Jesus headed? He's headed to the cross. He's about to take this very sin that we're reading about upon himself. And to satisfy God's wrath against Peter. And against all of us who would in this same situation deny Christ. Take it upon himself and satisfy God's wrath. Because this very thing is certainly worthy of God's wrath against him. Christ was merciful to Peter. For as I mentioned, this sin was about to be placed on Christ at the cross. And all of its implications, Christ was going to bear. And Christ alone. And what would he do in return? The righteousness of Christ would be charged to Peter's account. What I'm describing to you is salvation. 
salvation, not condemnation, not judgment, which Peter and all of us deserve, but salvation in his name, which none of us deserve. It is a mercy. The end of verse 74 and the beginning of verse 75 presents not only Peter's remembrance, but his rescue. He's rescued because immediately a rooster crowed. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered in verse 75 the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. He remembered. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Peter is rescued from his prideful confidence in the flesh. He is granted mercy where there should have been divine justice. And it should have been swift. And he is soon to be brought to reconciliation with his Lord. And that hour is coming just as Jesus had promised. Let me explain how beautifully woven together God's word is. It helps you understand why Peter dealt with Ananias and Sapphira as God's spirit called him to. Because the same thing was in play in his own life. Why do you what? Lie to the Holy Spirit. Why do you lie to the Holy Spirit, he said. And so in this case, Peter remembers. And I don't think it's a leap to make those connections because you see, even in the life of Peter, you see this. You see throughout his life, he is remembering the things that God has established in him. In Christ, that Christ had done in him, and that Christ had walked him through. Why do you think he writes to suffering Christians how they ought to suffer? Because he too had to learn the way of suffering in Christ. These are not simply theological seminars that the apostles are writing, they're writing things that they themselves had to walk through in Christ and strengthen others according to those things. This is a picture of godly sorrow that works repentance because Peter will repent. Christ even says so uh, with respect to what is said in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse, uh, verse 31. Before he tells Peter that he's going to deny him. Before Peter promises that he wouldn't. Look at verse 32. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. It is right after he predicts that when he struck down, then his flock will be scattered. He says essentially that I'm going to meet with you all. You will leave me. You will fall away. But I will bring you back. And I'll meet with you after my resurrection. The next one is a portrait of worldly sorrow. Of worldly sorrow. It is grief. It is regret. It is remorse. It's restitution. Worldly sorrow even has frustration. Worldly sorrow can be accompanied by tears, begging, pleading. But worldly sorrow is not repentance. It is not repentance. And we see that related to the very life of Judas. We look at Matthew 
chapter 27, verse 1. And morning had come, and the judgment had been rendered, and the cloak of night was used to make it appear as though a fair trial and a fair judgment had been rendered. And so here, the chief priests and the elders of the people, pretending to represent the interests of God and the people in their method, although God was pleased to crush his son on behalf of sinners, we must hold that up very plainly, he was certainly not pleased with the liars who pretended to execute justice. Because God's pleasure to crush his son did not include any wickedness found in him. Because there's, there is no wickedness in a perfectly holy God. But he was certainly pleased to use whatever means he used in order to bring about the event of our salvation and hope in him. But nonetheless, these people conferred together and rendered a verdict. Verse 2. They bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. They had already conferred against Jesus to put him to death. They made the judgment. Now they just needed the governor of the Roman Empire to sign off on the judgment. And Pilate was indeed the governor of the region. History is helpful here to know who is this Pilate. We'll talk a little bit more about him in the text that follow. But there are some things that are very interested about, uh, very interesting about him. Uh, just with respect to who is Pilate, why are they leading uh, Jesus to him, and how does he find himself this very historical person? How does he find himself in this region? Uh, one source says it's likely he came upon this outpost. Jerusalem was an outpost of the empire, not the central part of the empire for the Romans. Certainly for the Jews it was, but it was called Judea, Judea of the Roman Empire. And it seems that he had come to this place because he had failed to maintain control in other regions where he once stood as governor. And so this was, in a sense, his allotment as a form of punishment. You can still rule on behalf of the empire, but because you haven't ruled well, we gift you with the outpost called Judea. Recorded from a Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria, he sums up the reign of Pilate between the years of A.D. 26 and A.D. 36. When he wrote specifically in A.D. 50 that he basically castigated or cut down the prefect, the Roman governance, the territories, uh, for his briberies, he's writing this about Pilate, his insults, his robberies, his outrages, and his wanton in, in, uh, injuries, executions without trial. So this is a pattern with him, executing men without giving them trial. So if you've ever heard anyone preach or, or teach or speak about this text and somehow pretend that Pilate was a just man who was simply com, uh, conflicted, it's absolutely wrong. It's wrong historically and it's wrong biblically. Because if he was a just man, he lets Christ go free. But even in that sense, that was not God's divine plan. But I say that to say that some try to portray Pilate as some virtuous man who was simply conflicted. This is not true. He's a wicked man. But executions without trial constantly repeated. 
ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. These are characteristics of Pilate and the places which he governed, according to this source. His reign was essentially characterized as full of bribery and full of corruption by this Philo of Alexandria. And there's others who wrote about him as well. Uh, Josephus wrote about him as well. He is not a righteous man, but rather he is a wicked pragmatist. And listen, I only bring history in to point to paint a picture of who he is historically, although we don't find our ultimate bases in history. But we could say with fact that if the Bible mentions a person, there's a historical basis for not only that person's existence, but what that person did throughout history. He was a man who uh, was a wicked pragmatist, a man who accepted bribes at an alarming rate. And we see that we'll see this later. Listen to me. He was a man who washed his hands of righteous judgments so as not to disturb prevailing wickedness. He didn't wash his hands because he thought Christ was a man who should go free, so to speak. And if he did, even if that were the case, that's worldly sorrow. He washed his hands of righteous judgments so as not to disturb prevailing wickedness. That's called pragmatism. That's called worldly pragmatism. But he was also not simply a man who was indecisive. History records that he was a man who was ruthless. Because to rule in the Roman Empire, you had to be ruthless. You had to be ruthless. To his ruthlessness, it is said, uh, this was said about him in the, in, the, uh, in the years that followed, I believe, the life of Christ. But to his ruthlessness, it, it is said he used the funds from a temple treasury to build a Roman aqueduct. Listen to this. And when a certain number of Jewish dissenters protested the project, he dispatched plain clothed soldiers among them and on his signal had the protesters beaten to death. So after he robbed their temple... To build his project and people protested, he had them beaten to death and tried to distance himself from the event. To his wicked, pragmatic indecision, we will look to his life in our text. Because his indecision was not, again, a man conflicted with righteousness. He was a man conflicted with wickedness. And so he was... Indecisive. In other words, if the choice were for him to kill Jesus versus the Jews to kill Jesus, he'd rather they kill Jesus. But he was a man fully given to self-preservation, and the best he could offer in this case is worldly sorrow that works death. I mention this because this is the man they led him to. And he's much like the man I'm about to describe to you, Judas. They were similar. So first we will look at Judas. When Judas heard, it says in the text, that Jesus had been condemned, the text says he felt remorse. He felt remorse. He had regret. He felt remorse. He had regret. He cared. Judas began to care. He even tried to make restitution. He even tried to make restitution. And you might be asking at this point, how is this different than Peter? How is this different than Peter? In a few ways. 
For Judas, his home and his own place was hell. That was where he was headed. It was better for him that he what? Hadn't been born. He was headed to hell. Also, he was not a man who repented of his sins before God. He was not a man who was joined to the substitute for the remission of his sins. He felt remorse and tried to return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He even had a confession of his crimes. In verse 4 of Matthew chapter 27, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He had a confession. He had paid his penance. But penance isn't repentance. For he was indeed by nature the son of destruction. His name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. He was indeed the non-elect. And so his remorse was as empty as his previous attempts to follow Christ. He was given to the waves of simply emotional recognition of right or wrong. A moral compass. A moral compass he had. But it was all of his own flesh. That was Judas. A man who lived his life in the flesh. Even the religious part of his life lived in the flesh. Not by the spirit. In the flesh. As I've said, Judas even attempted in verse 4 to return the 30 pieces of silver. But remember, the arrangement he made was not necessarily the exchange of 30 pieces of silver for Christ. That is certainly what happened. The implications were he paid 30 pieces of silver for his own soul, he exchanged his soul. He had a price on his soul. And he exchanged it. And the chief priests and the elders, they were cold, wicked, and callous men. And you see by their response. Such is the same with all who are attached to so many of these false, constructed, worldly institution-based forms of religious entertainment and affection. Cold, wicked, and callous men. Because they had achieved their result. And Judas to them was only a pawn. That's who Judas was. They allowed Judas to listen to this. They allowed Judas to lead. But only lead them to Christ for his murder. They had no regard for Judas. Judas. Because Satan's disciples have no regard for one another. Judas was a pawn. And it says that they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. This expression in the Greek, a way to somewhat smooth it out and understand it a little better. It can be understood as this, something you're very familiar with. That is your concern, not ours. That's your concern. That you believe you betrayed innocent blood. That's not our concern. That has nothing to do with us. We're not here to exonerate him. We want to put him to death. 
We're not here to uphold his righteousness. We're here to try to attribute to him all manner of wickedness. That is your concern, not ours. Peter went out and wept bitterly in the account that we read. And he was restored. He was going to be restored. And he was going to be reconciled to his Lord. Peter, do you love me? He was to meet his resurrected king in Galilee at his resurrection. At the king's resurrection. But verse 5 is a stark and standing contrast. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. Fitting that he had done so. Because if we're honest, as we endeavor to be, that is where this blood money belonged. It belonged in the temple sanctuary. They were not God's men, nor was this his temple. And so their money belonged to them. But Judas did not leave these men to fall before God and cry out to him for mercy. That's not what Judas did. Instead, he went away and hanged himself. He went away and hanged himself. Worldly sorrow that produces death. How many grieve over their sin... Not to the point of repentance, but to the point of their own destruction. People make much of the phrase, you need to mourn over your sin. No, you need not only mourn over your you need to repent of your sin. Don't just mourn over your sin, repent of your sin. Cry out to God for mercy. Cry out to God to liberate you and free you by the blood of his cross. Because simply mourning over sin in and of itself will produce death. If one doesn't cry out to God and repent to turn away from it and be changed by the cross work itself, by the substitute, the great lamb. I believe that this presents the theater of what we should know as Christian testimony. I'm often waiting to hear more people say this. I cried out to God for mercy and he heard my cry. I wept before him, crying out regarding my particular sins. It's not just being inducted into the Christian life by institutional induction. It is I go before God and I cry out to him for mercy and he hears my cry. And guess what the evidence is? A changed life. A change, a hunger for righteousness, a thirst for righteousness. When I do fail him, and I will. I desire to be chastised by his loving hand and restored by his grand mercies. And I'm willing to confess all those sins openly. I just described to you true Christianity. True Christianity. Because that's what it is. And that's the difference. So many will rebuke Judas's treachery but they will not rebuke Judas's testimony and that's an issue because Judas wept Judas wept he returned the money he recognized the innocence of Christ 
But he didn't repent. He didn't repent. The chief priests and the scribes, they're in a bad way too. They know they've sinned. They know they've sinned against God. Judas knows this. They know he is just to punish him. All these men do. For Judas particularly, Judas wept. He, he, he sought restitution, but he did not cry out to him for salvation and confess his sins before him. And let me tell you something. You can confess your sins to other men and not confess your sins to God. The whole Roman Catholic system over the last however many years, millennium at, at, at least, has bankrolled that system. And modern evangelicalism has followed suit. That you can confess yourself to men. If you do not confess your sins to God, you are not one who has tasted salvation. You can weep before men. You can be sorrowful before men. You can catalog all of your sins that you've committed before men and yet not be liberated from those sins because you have not cried out to God himself. So this is not confessing your sins to other men, but before him, before God. Why? There's one mediator between God and man. Who is he? The man Christ Jesus. The God man. The chief priests did not see this and repent either. So they're in, they're in a bad place too, related to judgment. They were so concerned with not desecrating the temple with blood money, preservation of the institution. They were so concerned with not desecrating the temple with blood money, even though they desecrated the temple with their presence. So they said, don't give us back the money because it's blood money, even though we're the ones who paid you the money from the temple and we're the ones who commissioned the murder. Don't return it to us here because it would desecrate the temple. Fitting that they're the ones, as I mentioned, who paid out the silver to Judas to begin with, perhaps from the treasury and would not receive it again, knowing full well where they invested their silver and how they invested it. Don't give it to us here. Because it says that they accepted it. It's, it says that they eventually accepted it. They just said don't give it to us here essentially. Verse 7 shows that they accepted it. This is gross hypocrisy. Verse 7, just as they conferred against Jesus to put him to death in verse 1, they conferred together to determine what to do with this blood money. Always the dollar. Always the dollar. There they purchased a field. And it became a burial field for strangers called the field of blood. And it was so as of the writing of this gospel. And I would say that I had the privilege of laying eyes on what would be the purported location. I believe it is the exact location. But it's purported location to this day. As I looked across from a grave site uh, which is actually the grave site of uh, Schindler's List where, where the gentleman from that uh, from that movie 
uh, that was about his life where he is buried. But from that grave site, you can see this field of blood. And to this day, it is barren. It is uninhabitable. And it is avoided as a suitable place to cultivate the land for any use. There's nothing built there. It's just a desolate field. It's a dump. It's a place where stray dogs roam. And it is desolate and full of death, just like the one who betrayed the Lord. It's a picture of him. They're to look at this field and see it's a picture of him. And all of this is fulfillment of divine prophecy recorded here for us from the Old Testament. Here you see God ever present in the events. We close by reading verses 9 to 10. And that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. It doesn't say by the Romans. It says by the sons of Israel. They did this. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The next time we, we are together, uh, we will look at Jesus before Pilate. Let's pray.